Hallelujah. Well, let's start in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 again this morning. We uh, began a, a series a couple of weeks back on uh, gifts or manifestations of the Spirit. And you can't talk about that too long without getting into 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writing to the church makes some interesting statements. It's interesting. The, the whole subject is interesting to me because uh, there's, there's very few places in all of Paul's writings that he refers to these things. And uh, the, the biggest uh, section that he identifies the manifestations or gifts of the Spirit is in a church that already had them in operation. And uh, he's bringing some information and some correction to them and, and so forth. Uh, he starts off in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. We made mention of the fact that the word gifts is in italics in this verse, which means the translators added it. In the original Greek, it reads like this, Now concerning spirituals, plural, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Well, you could well understand why the translators would feel the need to put something in there to help us understand what he's talking about. But the word spirituals in the Greek means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. So he's literally saying, now concerning things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. It's a, it should be a great revelation to the church for the church to realize that God does not want us ignorant about the Holy Ghost. Because I would submit to you that that's the greatest area of ignorance in the modern day church. But God doesn't want it that way. And in order to keep it from being that way, he gave us instruction. And not all the church believes the instruction. Not all the church believes the things that Paul wrote. And uh, the church some, somehow has developed the own idea and their, their thinking. That some of these things are still in operation. Some of these things don't work today and, and so forth. But uh, this is the way that, uh, that God has provided a means for us to not be ignorant about things pertaining to the, of the Holy Ghost. Now, it's, uh, it's also important for us to realize that everything in the 12th chapter of the whole, of the 1 Corinthians uh, is pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. And not all of it is about spiritual gifts. He talks about ministry gifts. The last part of the chapter talks about ministry gifts or ministry offices, prophets, apostles, and so forth. He talks about the body of Christ and how we work together and function together or are intended to work together and function together as the human body does. Different parts, but all working for the same goal. Well, that's pertaining to the Holy Ghost, too. I think one of the greatest areas of ignorance in the body of Christ is the lack of understanding of how the Holy Ghost works in the body of Christ. In other words, that each part of us, each one of us is a part of the whole, the body of Christ, and each part has a specific and separate function. And if you don't do your part, then the body doesn't work right. If I don't do my part, then the body doesn't work right. And these are things that pertain to the Holy Ghost. And they're just as supernatural as the spectacular or the, the, uh, the things that give us goosebumps. It's all pertaining to the Holy Ghost. So Paul continues trying to, to uh, alleviate or overcome the ignorance that's in the body of Christ. He says in uh, verse 4, he says, Now there are diversities of gifts with the same spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God that worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Now notice what that means, or what it's saying. It's saying that the, whole, the Spirit of God manifests himself 
in and through each and every one of us so that all of us profit. See, profit with all doesn't mean the individual profits. It means the whole church profits. One of the things that, uh, that I think we miss is that Paul writes to the church a letter telling the church to desire these things, to desire manifestations of the Spirit. I think individuals desire these things for their own benefit most often. However, the Bible is telling the church, God is writing to the church, saying that we as a church body, a church family, should desire these things so that everybody gains from them. In other words, I shouldn't want the manifestation of the Spirit to draw a name for myself or make a name for myself, draw attention to me. I should want the manifestation of the Spirit to operate the way that God wants so that the church is benefited and the church prospers. In other words, God wants to make a name for the church, not the people in it, individuals in it. Are you out there? And once we identify and correct our motives, get our motives in the, uh, going in the right vein, I think that enables God to move the way that he wants to. I think there's a lot of things that God wants to do that are even greater than the things that we desire for him to do. But because we're not in a position to cooperate with him fully, maybe through our own ignorance of how the Holy Ghost works or whatever the case might be, then we hinder him. But I believe the time is coming where it's too late in the game to hinder the Holy Ghost from moving. Amen? For the one, verse 8, for the one is given by the Spirit. He gives us a list of nine manifestations. For the one is given by the Spirit, the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. One translation says special faith. I like that. To another the gifts of healings. Both gifts and healings are in the plural in the original. There's a plurality of gifts of healing. To another the gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another discerning of spirits. To another diverse kinds of tongues. And to another the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11. But all these worketh. Thank God they all work. But all these worketh that one in the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man separately as he will. Now, we've, um, uh, we've talked a little bit briefly about this list of nine manifestations of the spirit. You can divide these into three different groups. Three of them say something or are utterance gifts, vocal gifts. Three of them reveal something. And three of them do something. Now, stop and think about this for a minute, folks. God never changes. So that means when the Holy Ghost is telling Paul, giving Paul instruction so that the church is not ignorant, he gives him a complete list of everything that he does and how he does it. It'd have to be a complete list, wouldn't it? Otherwise, we'd still be in ignorance. Otherwise, there would be things, according to what Paul said, that the Holy Ghost doesn't want us to be ignorant about that we'd still be ignorant on. So it has to be a complete list. That means we can find throughout history from the beginning of the Bible that we can find that the Holy Ghost has operated in these same three categories, saying something, revealing something, or doing something. Now, the only difference in the Old Testament, the New Testament manifestations of the Spirit is that there are two of these manifestations that are distinctive for the church age. In other words, that didn't happen in the Old Testament, and that's tongues and interpretation of tongues. But God still spoke. God still manifested himself 
vocally through prophecy, which is the third one of the group, the vocal group, the vocal manifestations. But everything about what God ever has done and ever will do is going to fall into one of these categories. And that's what God doesn't want us to be ignorant about. Now, if you stop right there and and use that as a measuring stick or a rule to judge everything that everybody has ever said God did or wanted to do or told them to do or whatever, you can find a lot of it that's right and a lot of it that's wrong. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. Everything that the Holy Ghost does is going to fall into one of these categories. And in the church age, beginning with the resurrection of Jesus, everything the Holy Ghost is going to do is going to be one of these nine manifestations of the Spirit. So when the Bible talks about in the last days an outpouring of the Holy Ghost, what's that going to look like? One of these nine manifestations. It means the Holy Ghost is going to move. According to James 5, 7, Jesus is waiting to come back to the church. Well, what's he waiting on? He's waiting on the precious fruit of the earth, the harvest of people. Well, what's going to bring about that harvest of people? The early and the latter rain, which is always a type of the moving of the Holy Ghost. How's the Holy Ghost going to move to bring about this precious fruit of the earth in these nine manifestations of the Spirit? When we pray, Lord, move, what are we praying? Do these nine manifestations. Manifest yourself in these nine ways. Now, if anybody's praying for something outside of that, which a lot of people do, they're praying contrary to the will and the purpose of God. Knowing these things, at least for me, knowing these things help me to pray more effectively and more specifically according to the plan and purpose of God. Amen? In other words... We should expect the further and further we get toward the end times or into the end times, I believe we're already there, the more and more we should expect these nine manifestations of the Spirit to be in operation. And in fact, there's no excuse for them not to be in operation. Hello. That has to be true, doesn't it? Well, we talked, started talking about uh, these nine manifestations of spirit last week. And we talked about the word of knowledge, which is a divine revelation of certain facts in the mind of God. Now, it has to be either past or present tense facts or information. You can't have knowledge of the future. The future would be the word of wisdom and not the word of knowledge. And we talked a little bit about it. If you were with us, we'll remind you just briefly. One of the, the examples that we used was when John was on the island of Patmos and he received the revelation, what we know of as the book of Revelation. Well, the first part of the revelation that he received was information to deliver to the seven churches. And Jesus revealed to John facts, information, specific and detailed information about things things that were going on in each of those seven churches. Well, how would John know since he's in the Isle of Pamos? How would he have that information to write down in the letter to send to those churches? It had to be divine revelation. It had to be divinely given. It's information that he wouldn't have otherwise. We talked about a couple of other examples. We talked about in 1 Samuel chapter 9 where Samuel revealed to Saul 
that his father's animals were found, Saul had gone to the, to the prophet because he'd been searching for days for the animals that were lost from his father's possession. And when he got there, Samuel told him the plan of God for him to be king, which would be a word of wisdom, a future event. But then he revealed to him that the animals had already been found and had been found three days ago, and now everybody's looking for him. Then in the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 10, it tells us about how that when the time came for a public coronation or choosing for Saul to be king, the lot fell upon him and nobody could find him. He already knew what was going on and he was kind of afraid of the whole thing. So he hid himself in the stuff. So everybody went to Samuel and asked, where is he? Asked the Lord, inquired the Lord to find out where he is. Well, the Lord told Samuel where he was and he revealed his hiding place. Well, God knows where everybody's hiding, doesn't he? But he didn't tell him where everybody was hiding. He just told him where the one person was hiding that they inquired about. In other words, it was a word of knowledge. And here's something that some people mistake. They think that it's the gift of knowledge, and it's not. There's a knowledge that you can gain and should gain through study of the word of God. There's a knowledge of God and an acquaintance with God, a fellowship with God, that comes from us spending time with him in prayer. Those are the good things and right things, but they're not this manifestation of the Spirit. Just for, uh, to use another example, it's like a lawyer. A lawyer goes to law school and does a lot of study, and he spends years and years and years in uh, practice honing his skills where the law is concerned. Well, if you go to the law office, if you set up an appointment with a lawyer, you don't go in to find out everything he knows. You go in to find out what specific information he has that covers your case or your situation. In other words, you want a part of his knowledge that he's gained through learning and experience. Well, in the same way, a word of knowledge is not knowledge of everything. God just shows you a part or the Holy Ghost manifests himself to show you a part of what God knows that you don't know. Amen? We also talked about uh, in Second Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman the Syrian who went down to receive healing from leprosy. Uh, so he was told by the little slave girl that was in his house about uh, Elisha the prophet down in Israel. And so he goes and seeks his healing. Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. He says, sends word to him. And here's a, here's a great man. He was captain of the army of Syria. And, and uh, he came down with a lot of people with him and a great entourage and, you know, great importance attached to his position and so forth and Elisha doesn't even go outside the house he just says well tell him to go dip in the Jordan River seven times well that makes him mad he thinks he's wasted his time to come down and uh, it's not going to work and they finally talk him into doing it he comes again clean so now he comes back to Elisha and man he's happy he thinks Elisha is the greatest thing in the world so he wants to give him an offering and the things that he brought with him the gifts and all that kind of stuff and Elisha won't take it he says, no, it's not time for that to receive offerings. You'll think you bought your healing from God if we do it this way. And so we're not going to receive it. So Elijah, so Naaman goes his way. He's on his way back to, uh, to his home. And Gehazi, who is Elisha's servant, goes running after him in secret. Comes up on him, tells him a lie about what has happened. He says, people have come to the, to the young men, young sons of the prophets have come to Elisha's house. And Elisha sent him. Gehazi says to go receive some of the things that, that Naaman was willing to give and Naaman's still so happy he just gives him twice what he asked for 
Gehazi goes and hides it. He's interested in keeping it for himself. So he goes and hides it and comes back in the presence of Elisha. And Elisha says, Gehazi, where have you been? He says, I didn't go anywhere. I haven't been anywhere. And Elisha says, went not my heart with you when you joined yourself to Naaman's chariot. Now, it's interesting the way that he says that. He says, I, it was like I was there too. Now, how would he know that Gehazi had gone or at, uh, it makes it seem like he saw it at the time that it happened, which would be a present tense event. How would, uh, how would uh, Elisha know that this had happened if not by revelation of the Holy Ghost? See, here's a manifestation of the Spirit, divine revelation to expose a hypocrite. I wonder if God still exposes hypocrites today. That's scary. Well, the end result is Naaman's leprosy uh, attaches itself to Gehazi and never leaves his family. Now, you'd have to think about it from Gehazi's standpoint. How stupid would you have to be to try to pull that off? But on the other hand, the fact that he did try, the fact that he had been with, Nahum, with uh, Elisha for some time and tried to make it, make it work to his advantage, try to steal, he knows that, Gehe, that uh, Gehazi knows that Elisha doesn't know everything that's going on or else he wouldn't even have tried that. In other words, the prophet, even the person that stands in the prophet's office, only knows what God reveals to him. There's the manifestation of a word of knowledge. Now turn with me over to Second Corinthians or Second Kings, excuse me, chapter six. Here's another Old Testament example of the of the word of knowledge. We'll start reading in verse eight. It says, "Then the king of Syria warred against Israel, and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp." And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such place, for there the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place where the man of God told him and warned him of and saved himself there not once or twice. In other words, he's making military plans. The king of Syria is making military plans. And Elisha receives a word of knowledge from the Lord, divine revelation from the Lord about what those military plans are. And Israel saves itself from an ambush. And it said it happened several times, not just once or twice, but several times. So it says in uh, verse 11, Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing, and he called his servants and said unto them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, who's the spy? Somebody's telling our military plans to Israel. And one of the servants said, it's interesting to me that over and over again you find that the servants know more than the kings. I wonder if that's still the case today. And one of the servants said, None, my lord, we don't have a spy. But Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in thy bedchamber. So here you see the word of knowledge in operation, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit to save the nation of Israel. Warning of the enemy's plans. Now there was a, uh, let me tell you how a uh, um, modern day uh, comparison or correlation example of this. There was a, uh, a pastor, this, this is some years ago, but there was a pastor in a small town that was, uh, the uh, church had raised some money to put on a new roof. 
owned the church building. And so he was helping out with the work. Some of the people in the church were, were uh, involved in the work as well. They had hired some people, but they were doing some of the work to save money on the, on the project. So the pastor's up on the roof helping put on the new roof and doing the things involved with that. And while he's up there, the Lord speaks to him and tells him that a certain member of his church at, certain, at a certain address was gathering a petition among church members at that moment to oust him as pastor. Well, that's not what you expect when you go roofing. So he sat there for a minute, put down his tools, climbed down the ladder, got in his car and drove to the address that the Lord told him. Knocks on the front door. Somebody comes to the door. It's a member of his church. They look surprised. And without waiting to be invited in, he just goes right through the front door into the middle of the meeting. Now, while he's there, or as soon as he walks in, he sees that the living room is full of church people leaders of the church, members of the church, and so forth. And so without waiting for anything, asking him what was going on or anything else, he just begins to speak up. says, the Lord told me that such and such person, points to the guy that the Lord told him about, who's a deacon in the church, is gathering up a petition to oust me as pastor. Well, everybody was flabbergasted because the guy had, the meeting had just begun. The guy hadn't even told everybody why they were there yet what he was after so the only person that really knew what was going on was the guy that was trying to get the pastor kicked out and so he spit and sputtered and you know was shocked and everything he said well yeah he said i haven't even told everybody what was going on why i wanted him here yet he said if the lord's told on me then he can't be through with you so he had determined that that god was through the pastor and the pastor couldn't fulfill the duties or whatever the case is he didn't like it whatever was the motive behind it But here was a case where just like with Elisha and the nation of Israel, God warned the pastor of the enemy's plans. Now, how would he know that? How would he know something like that was going on except by divine revelation? So if any of you ever have any plans to get rid of me. (laughs) All I got to do is go up on the roof. Here's another interesting one. Turn with me back to to, uh, 1 Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings chapter 14. This is in the days of the... When the um, nation of Israel was split in two. Northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Jeroboam is is the wicked king of Israel. And it says in beginning in verse 1. At that time Abijah... The son of Jeroboam fell sick. Jeroboam's the king of Israel. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, I pray thee, and disguise yourself, that thou be not known to be the wife of Jeroboam. And get thee to Shiloh. Behold, there is Ahijah, the prophet, which told me that I should be king over this people. And take with thee ten loaves and cracknels and a cruise of honey and go to him, and he shall tell thee what shall become of the child. And Jeroboam's wife did so. She disguised herself and arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were set by reason of his age. In other words, he's blind. He's an old man and he's blind. And the Lord said unto Ahijah, 
Behold, the wife of Jeroboam cometh. Apparently, she's, this is while it's taking place, not beforehand. Behold, the wife of Jeroboam cometh to ask a thing of thee for her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shalt thou say unto her, for it shall be when she comes in that she shall faint herself, pretend herself to be another woman. And it was so when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came at the door that he said, Come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. Why faintest thou or pretendest thou to be somebody else? For I am sent to thee with heavy tidings. Now how would a blind man know who's coming? Here's revelation of God. Divine revelation. To thwart an enemy king's, uh, well, an evil king, not an enemy king. He's king of Israel. But to thwart an evil king's plans. God must be in the. God must be interested, in letting evil kings know certain times along the way, at least, that they're not greater than He is. I'm looking forward to some of that kind of stuff happening again. You know, there were times where kings would come to the prophets, and the prophets would say, "You know, you're just the king." Lord, raise up prophets like that now. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 9. We'll look at some New Testament examples of these things too. Acts chapter 9. Very seldom, it seems, from the examples that we have in Scripture, very seldom does the word of knowledge work or stand alone on its own. And here's the reason for, for me saying that. The word of knowledge, divine revelation of certain facts or events in the mind of God, past or present tense stuff, is usually in operation, usually operates for the purpose of drawing attention, drawing the individual's attention to the fact that something supernatural is going on so that some other work of God can be accomplished. In other words, it wouldn't make much sense for me to stand up here and say, well, the Lord shows me this and the Lord shows me that, and then nothing happened as a result of it. God always does things for a purpose. And people that, that, um, that misuse these things or attempt to operate these things in the flesh somehow, sometimes or somehow seem to have the idea that it's all about what you think about them and how God's using them. But what good would it do for somebody to have supernatural or divine revelation if nothing comes of the revelation? What's the point? God always does things for a purpose. He always has a reason involved. Acts chapter 9, Paul has met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's blinded by the glory of the light, the brightness of the light that shines around about him. And he goes into Damascus, and it says in verse 9, He was there three days without sight, neither did eat or drink. Verse 10, And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision. And notice how this comes. The Lord is speaking in a vision. So apparently that indicates that he sees Jesus in the vision. And the Lord said unto him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into a street which is called Straight, that's a location, and inquire in the house of Judas, specific place, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prays. Now how would Ananias know who's praying where? Except God shows him. Now Ananias argues with the Lord a little bit. 
uh, well, let me finish what Jesus said. And it has seen in a vision, has seen in a vision, past tense, has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Now, why would Jesus need to tell Ananias all, these, all this information? He tells him where he is, tells him that he's praying, tells him that he's seen in a vision something that hasn't happened yet. So the vision from Paul's standpoint, or Saul's standpoint, his name's not Paul yet, but from Saul's standpoint, the vision is future, which would be a word of wisdom. But the information that comes to Ananias is past tense. Paul has seen in a vision. It's already occurred. So it would be a word of knowledge for him. Isn't it interesting that the same vision could be two different manifestations of the Spirit? Depending on who it, who's being spoken of. Ananias argues with the Lord a little bit and says, uh, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. Let me give you my interpretation of what Ananias said. He said, Lord, if this guy's blind, we've heard about him. He's persecuting the church. Blind is a good thing for him, isn't it? But the Lord said unto him, now here he moves into future. Here's the word of wisdom in operation. Now think about why the word of knowledge came. The word of knowledge came to Ananias to show him the supernatural nature so that the plan of God could be accomplished. Ananias has heard about Saul and the fact that he's there to persecute the church. And so he would need some kind of supernatural operation to go against what he thinks, which he identifies should be the way things go. He thinks we need to leave Saul in the condition that he's in until he gets this information. The Lord says unto him, go your way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I must show him, I will show him, how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. In other words, he says, I've got a plan for him. It's a great plan. It's going to be tough for him. I don't know if that factors into Ananias' willingness to go. Oh, well, okay, if it's going to be tough for him, then I'll go. But the word of knowledge brings factual information to him so that the plan of God can be accomplished. There was a, um, uh, there was a, a church that was decided that they were going to try to evangelize their city. A smaller city, not a real big place, but a, a, several thousand people. And, um, uh, and so they, they started canvassing. They got a big map of the city and, and uh, started canvassing and going door to door trying to witness to people. They did that for several weeks and got nobody saved. It just wasn't working. They, they had the right heart, the right motive, wanted for the right things, but it just wasn't working. So the pastor's wife, which was heading up the, um, <coughs> excuse me, the pastor's wife who was heading up the, the outreach, said to the to and it was mostly other ladies in the church that were involved she got them together and said listen before we go out like we've normally been doing since we haven't gotten any results let's stay back and just pray find out where god wants us to go because you have to be hungry people in our city so they did they wound up sitting and and uh, at the church and and uh, praying for about an hour and after that period of time the pastor's wife had a vision and in this vision, she was standing on a street corner, a certain street corner in her city. She saw the, the sign, you know, the corner signs that showed the intersection of the city, the two, two streets coming together, so she knew where it would be, or, or she knew 
where to look up on the map to find out where it was. And um, then after she saw that, she turned in the vision and she saw a house just one or two doors down from the intersection. She saw the street number and so she knew what house it was. And now she's standing in front of the house. It was an old converted house that had turned into a fourplex or several different apartments. So she went into the house in the vision, went up the stairs, turned to the right and the apartment on the right. So that's all she knew, and she stopped, and that's where the vision ended. So she told uh, the ladies that she was praying with, she said, look, I've just seen something. She said, I don't know what it means, but let's, let's see if we can find this place. So they got out the big church, the, the big city map they had at the church, found the intersection, found out how to get there. And so she and uh, one of her partners in this uh, ministry endeavor went to the location. Saw it just like it was in the vision. Parked the car, got out. She said, that's the house right there. Went up into the to the uh, the doorway where it was kind of opened as a lobby area. She went up the stairs, the, the first uh, door on the right that she saw in the vision. She knocked on the door and she heard somebody's voice kind of feebly call out, come in. So she came into the room and as soon as she stepped into the room, there was a lady on the on the couch on the other side of the, the room, far side of the room. And this lady on the couch, or the couch meaning a little bed thing, she was laying down. And this lady started screaming. She started just making a big racket and making a lot of noise. And so she kind of startled the pastor's wife and the lady that was with her. And so she got to calm down a little bit. And she said, what are you hollering about? She said, I had a vision earlier today and saw somebody that looked just like you coming in and laying hands on me and getting me healed well she did get healed that led to the salvation of everybody in the house spread out into news around the city and became a a real ministry outreach successful ministry outreach from that point forward all because they prayed instead of knocking on doors and knocking on doors is a good thing I mean you can't fault somebody for trying but a manifestation of the Spirit produced many, many, many more results. So what, what she saw was a word of knowledge concerning information, factual information that led her to something that she didn't even know to expect. Now look with me over to, uh, <clears throat> well, we're right there in Acts chapter 9. Let's look at Acts chapter 10 real quick. Here's a story of Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter going up on the housetop and having a vision. And in this vision, he sees a, uh, a big sheet let down from four corners. It's got all kinds of beasts in it, wild beasts and clean and unclean animals together. And the Lord speaks in the vision and says, rise, slay, and eat. And uh, Peter says three times, this happened three times. And Peter says each time, not so, Lord, for I have not eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now think about that. Here's Peter saying, no, Jesus. I think that's more common than we'd like to admit. How do you do that? Not so, Lord. If he's Lord, it's not, the answer's never no. If the answer's no, he's not Lord. They may be your Savior. Heaven may be your home. But no, Lord, is not, doesn't work. 
Because if he's Lord, the answer is always yes. But Peter apparently hadn't figured that out. Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Verse 15, and the voice spoke again the second time. What God has cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done three times, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now notice verse 17. Now when Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean. See, a lot of times people think that if something supernatural happens, you're going to know instantly and everything's going to be clear and everything's going to unfold before you. It didn't for Peter. Peter doesn't know what this means. He knows it's a supernatural occurrence. He even knows Jesus was involved. He answered him, not so, Lord. So he knows it's of God, but he doesn't have a clue what it means. So while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the, the men which were sent from Cornelius' house had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon was surnamed Peter who were lodged there. This is part of the vision that Cornelius has had the day before where the angel told him to send to Joppa to a certain place where Peter was and asked for Peter, Simon Peter. So that now they're, they're, uh, they've arrived. Now, while Peter thought on the vision, verse 19, while Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, the Spirit said unto him. Now, we've seen the the word of knowledge work through visions. We've seen that uh, Elisha's heart went with him. It's like Elisha was there and and, uh, witnessed it himself as if he was present. We've seen it operate in a couple of different ways. Here, the Holy Ghost just says to Peter, behold, three men seek thee. He's on the rooftop, still on the housetop, thinking about the vision. He doesn't know what's going on. And the Holy Ghost brings him information. Arise, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, and get thee down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So here's the word of, uh, word of knowledge that comes just by the Holy Ghost speaking to Peter and telling him what to do. Now, remember we read that there are diversities of operations. This clearly shows us that these different manifestations of the Spirit or the same manifestation of the Spirit, I should say, can work different ways at different times. In other words, we can't put everything in a box and say it's always going to be like this. And if we were able to do that, it would lose the supernatural aspect or an element of mystery that the supernatural dictates. So these things are going to work in different ways at different times. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 5. Here's another example of the word of knowledge operating in the church, the early days of the church. Acts chapter 5, the fourth chapter tells us about Barnabas, who sold a piece of land and brought it and laid the money at the apostles' feet. And apparently that was uh, because he was doing something at God's instruction. It, uh, uh, It created a place, an opening for the place that God had for Barnabas to fill in the early days of the church. Verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's their land. They can do with it what they want to. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. 
And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came upon all them that heard these things. Now, apparently, and I'll prove it to you in just a moment. But apparently, Ananias is trying to gain the same kind of position or esteem that Barnabas gained by giving the price of the land that he sold, Barnabas sold, to the church. But he's trying to cheat cheat his way in there. He's trying to give a little bit of the money or some part of the money that he sold the land for, but claim that he's giving it all. So you can see his motives are wrong. His motives are not in trying to bless the church. His motives are trying to gain something from his giving. And apparently that doesn't work with God. So it says, Ananias heard these words and fell down and gave up the ghost. He died. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. Folks, I want you to know their church services went at least three hours. Three hours later, she comes in. Things are still going on. Don't complain about me preaching long. And Peter answering, she came in. She didn't know. She hadn't heard. Isn't that amazing? Nobody ran to her house to tell her what had happened to her husband. Church was different in those days, I guess. And Peter answered unto her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yea, for so much. So they've conspired together to lie to the church. Then Peter said unto her, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon all those as, as many as heard these things. Now, the Bible doesn't say it, but I'm wondering if church attendance was as high the following week. Folks, here you see a word of knowledge. There's no way Peter would have known anything about the price of the land or, or what they're doing with the gifts or, or whatever else except by divine revelation. Here you see the manifestation of the Holy Ghost to prevent somebody with the wrong motives from getting a place in the church. God protects his church. And remember when Paul writes to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost, he spends more of the chapter talking about the body of Christ working together than he does any of the rest of the stuff. There's a supernatural aspect to the church family. I think we've ignored that whether through ignorance or, or whatever the case might be, I think we've ignored that and we've missed out a lot on the supernatural working of God because of it. Now, you remember in John chapter 4, the woman at the well of Samaria. Why don't you turn back there with me for a minute? Here's an example of the word of knowledge in operation. That brings information to a woman of her need of a savior. Jesus was at Jacob's well and there came, verse 7, there comes a woman, a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said unto her, give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. And then said the woman of Samaria to him, how is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. 
Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that said to you, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. But Jesus is talking about salvation. She's at a well, so she's thinking natural water. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank himself, drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him, it shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Again, he's trying to explain about salvation. The woman said unto her, unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She's thinking naturally. She's thinking, well, if I have water that I never need anymore, then look at how much time I can save and, and not have to come carry water day after day after day like I do. Jesus said unto her, Go call your husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not your husband. In that thou said truly. Now before we go any further, let me, let me point out some. This idea that, that young people have and have had for a long time about marriage is not important, just living together. We love each other, so we're going to live together. In the eyes of God, we're married just the same as if we had a ceremony. Jesus just blows that out of the water. Jesus says living together is not the same thing as having a husband. He said you've had four husbands and the guy you've got now is not your husband. So living together is not the same thing as being married in the eyes of God. Now the woman responds and says, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Now what was it that caused her to recognize Jesus was a prophet? He's been talking about salvation and living water and so forth up, in, up until that point in time. He's identified that he's somebody special because he said, if you knew who I was that was at, if you knew the person that was asking you for water, then you'd ask him for the living water. He's already identified, I'm not your average guy. But it was only when there's a manifestation of the Spirit concerning her life that she stops and realizes, hey, there's something that's going on here. God's trying to get something across to me. She said, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And, and then she asked about the, the place to worship and stuff like that. And, and Jesus um, uh, says to her in verse 23, the time is coming and now is. The hour is coming and now is. When the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh us to worship him. Verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worshiped him must, 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 must worship him in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth is not soul and truth. Spirit and truth is not body and truth. If there's one thing the church world is ignorant of in these last days, it's how to worship from their spirit. Don't go on the Christian radio station to expect to find worship in spirit and truth. Find a lot of soul stuff. Find a lot of fleshly stuff. Find a lot of songs about how we feel about God. That's not spiritual worship. Everybody's got their own ideas about God and they sing them. I guess they make a lot of money with their songs. But that's not what God's looking for. God's looking for people to worship him from their spirit. 
independent of their feelings, independent of their mind, but from their spirit. That doesn't mean you turn your mind off. That means you train your mind to think according to the truth of God's word. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said unto him, I know that Messiah is coming, which is called Christ. And when he has come, he will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Now, he's finally got her to the place that he wanted her. And look at what it took to get her there. Divine revelation. Divine revelation. I wonder if God's still in the business of divine revelation to convince people of their need for a savior today. I'm running out of time, so let me cover a couple real quick. Turn with me over to John chapter 5. Well, we're right there. John chapter 5. Notice the story of the, of the man at the uh, pool of Bethesda. Most of the word of knowledge that we see today is in connection with people calling out folks that have conditions of sickness or disease and healing resulting. I, I know that, uh, and I, I haven't seen it for years, but I know that uh, it used to be on the 700 Club. Pat Robertson would be used in this way a lot. Richard Roberts was used in this way on his TV shows in years past. I haven't seen either one of them in a long time, so I don't know if it's uh, still the case or not. But they would they would be on uh, on their set on the TV show, and they would be impressed by the Holy Ghost to say there's somebody with a certain condition, you know, whatever it is, cancer, whatever. The Lord is healing you now. And then they would write or read the testimonies of people that wrote in and said, when you called this out, this happened to me and now I'm healed and, and so on and so forth. Well, we don't have much evidence of that in, in Scripture. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's wrong. I mean, you can judge everything by the fruit that it produces. And the people got healed. So you can't argue with that. Healings of God. So you can't argue with the results. But I inquired of the Lord about that some, some years ago. I said, Lord, why is that the, the main way that we see the word of knowledge in operation in the church, but we don't have any evidence of it in Scripture? And he showed me one. Now you judge it for yourself, but this is what the Lord brought me to. Beginning in verse 1, it says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and, the Jews went up, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at, the Jer- at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lying, knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Did you see it? Did you see it? Did you notice verse 6? When Jesus saw him and knew there had been a long time in that case. What made Jesus single this guy out? I don't believe there's anything accidental in Scripture. There was something about when Jesus focused on this guy and knew what he knew about him 
that caused him to address him. Now, there's five porches full of sick people. Some lame, some halt, some withered, waiting for the troubling of the water. Jesus could have picked anybody in the group. If he sent there to heal somebody, if, if it's working the way that most people think that Jesus ministered anyway, where he just indiscriminately went around trying to, trying to prove the power of God was upon him, then he could have picked anybody that he wanted. Why this guy? Now, we know from what he asked him that the first thing Jesus looks for with him is the first thing Jesus looks for with you and me, and that's faith. He asked him, will you be made whole? He's giving him an opportunity to say what he believes. Instead, the guy tells him his problem. Faith doesn't talk about the problem. So this man was not healed on his own faith. He was healed by manifestation of the Spirit, It's either a gift of healing or the gift of faith, special faith in operation. Since they both bring about the same result in this case, it's impossible to tell which one it is. But we do know that it's got to be a manifestation of the Spirit because there's no effort on the part of the individual or no faith on the part of the individual that receives. So it's not him. So it's Jesus operating by the Holy Ghost. We know it's Jesus operating by the Holy Ghost because Jesus said himself, the works that I do, it's not me doing them. It's the Father in me that, do, that does them. Well, how is the Father in him? By the Spirit of God. He's talking about the Holy Ghost having come upon him and anointed him after he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. That's when his, his miracle ministry started, not before. He was just as much the Son of God when he was 12 as when he was 30. How come he didn't do any miracles when he was 12? Because he's not anointed the Holy Ghost to do miracle works. So that's what he's talking about when he says it's not me doing the works. It's the Holy Ghost or the power of God within me. He calls it the Father. The Father in me. It's the presence of the Holy Ghost upon him who has anointed him. He said himself in Luke chapter 4 when he preached in his own hometown of Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Who anointed him? The Spirit of the Lord. Can I ask you a question? How can you anoint God? There's only one answer to that. There's only one possibility. Jesus had to lay aside his heavenly power and glory, which is exactly what Philippians 2 says, and come to earth and be as a man, simply as a man. That's the only way he could be anointed of the Holy Ghost. So we see this manifestation of the Spirit operating to bring a healing to this man that was crippled. Why this guy? Notice it says when Jesus saw him and knew, and knew. There's something that he knew. Well, what did he know? He knew that he'd been a long time in that case. Is he the only guy that's been a long time in in their condition? Or maybe Jesus polled the crowd. Maybe he said, all right, now all of you people that are here, who's been sick the longest? Who's been sick for 10 years? Raise your hand. If you've been sick for 15 years, keep your hand up. The rest of you put your hands down. Is that how he went about finding out? No, it says when he knew. There are times where the Bible says over and over again, um, the time where Jesus is preaching in his own house and uh, the four people take off the roof, make a hole in the roof and let the guy down on the, the cot. It says when Jesus started ministering to the guy, he knew the thoughts of the Pharisees and the doctors of the law that were in the house. 
How did he know? If he didn't know for sure, then it would have said he assumed what they were thinking. And there are times where it says he perceived their thoughts. But it says in that case that he knew. He knew. There are times when I'm preaching, just minding my own business, trying to make a point. And I'll hear something. It's like a voice that I hear from behind me. It comes over my right shoulder. And I'll hear somebody say something in objection to what I'm speaking about or what I'm teaching. So I'll address, I'll address the, the objection. There are times where I've had people come up and say, you know, Pastor Mike, when you said this, that was exactly what I was thinking at that time. Well, I don't know who's thinking it, but I know somebody's thinking it. It's almost like somebody interrupted me. The first time it happened, I almost turned around to see who was behind me. I'm thinking, who is this interrupting my sermon? Now, I don't know if it works like that with everybody. And it doesn't always work like that with me, but there are times where it does. Now, you need to know something about the manifestation of the Spirit. I'm out of time, so let me cover this real quickly. And that is this. When Paul speaks to the church about these nine manifestations of the Spirit, he's telling this is how the Holy Ghost works. But you need to realize that each one of these nine manifestations of spirit, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, discerning of spirits, prophecy, tongues, and interpretation of tongues, working of miracles, gifts of healings, and special faith. All nine of those things that are on the list of manifestations of the spirit are just simply a greater measure of the same operation of the Holy Ghost that works in and through every one of us. Let me give you an example. The gift of faith is a, it may be the easiest one to see. The Bible says that everyone receives saving faith through the hearing of the word. Romans 10 is real clear on that. It says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. In other words, if you don't hear Jesus preached, then you can't have faith to receive him as Lord and Savior. So what is saving faith? Well, the Bible tells us how saving faith works. It says it's believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth. You confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right? Now, what about what we would call ordinary faith? That's saving faith. What about ordinary faith? In other words, faith to receive things that Jesus purchased for us, like healing, blessing, prosperity, financial well-being, whatever else, peace and such. How do you operate in what we would call ordinary faith? Faith that God intends every person to operate in. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's not just to get saved. That's to live your life. Right? How do you get that ordinary faith that we're supposed to live by? Well, the same way. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more you hear the word of God, the more you focus on the word of God and meditate on the word of God, the stronger you develop your faith to receive anything and everything God has done for us. Well, then what's the gift of faith or special faith? Well, if it's faith, it has to be the same thing. It has to be believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. So what is special faith or this manifestation of the gift of faith? It's a greater measure of the same faith that gets you saved and receives anything and everything else from God. It's where you know that you know that you know. You may not be able to explain how you know, but it's a stronger manifestation of the Spirit that causes you to know that what you say will come to pass. We'll talk more about it when we 
get to that one on the list. But how could Joshua in the Old Testament command the sun and the moon to stand still? Is that saving faith? No, I can't find a scripture for that. Ordinary faith? No. Not one to cover that either. What is that? It's the gift of faith. How did Joshua know that he could do it? There's no explanation for that, folks. It had to be a manifestation of the Holy Ghost. It had to be something that God did for him, specifically for the the sake of Israel winning the battle over their enemies at that point in time. The Bible goes on to explain that. It says, there was never such a day as that one when God honored a man's word as his own. Well, what was that? I mean, if, if you ask Joshua about it, Joshua, how did you know you could command the sun and the moon to stand still? Well, I don't know. It just seemed like the thing to do. Well, if he hadn't had that something that told him to do it from the inside, if he hadn't had that manifestation of the Spirit that came upon him, there's no way he would have thought that it was appropriate to try. You ever tried that? Give it a try this evening. Tell the sun to stand still and the moon to hold its place. We'll see if it works for you. Well, why would it work for Joshua when it wouldn't work for us if we tried it today? Because Joshua had something. He had a manifestation of the Spirit that enabled him to do it. And without that special something, that greater measure of the Holy Ghost, you can't make this stuff work. Now, with that in mind, let me tell you a story. There's all kinds of ways that, that, uh, and, and examples that we could give you of people that have been impressed uh, or people that have had a revelation from God in prayer about somebody, missionaries or whoever, family members, whoever it might be, and that caused them to pray so that those things could be avoided. Divine revelation that comes. But what about a revelation that's not, or what about a, a work of the Holy Ghost It's not a greater measure that brings revelation. Let me tell you the story. Maybe I can explain it a little better this way. Some years ago, um, almost 20 now, I guess, uh, it was Wednesday. The only thing I really remember is it was Wednesday evening. And I was getting ready for church. Don't remember what I was preaching or what, what subject I was on or anything else. But I just had a real urge to pray. And I thought, well, Lord, I, I need to pray, but I need to study. I need to get ready for church tonight. So I'd pray for a little bit and then then go back to studying. And I couldn't get away from the the urge to pray. So I finally just gave up and said, well, all right, I'm going to have to take care of this, whatever it is. So I started praying. And the more I prayed, the stronger it got. The more I prayed, the stronger it got. I prayed for about an hour, 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, something like that. And and finally I said, it took me that long to, to get there. But finally I said, Lord, who is this? What am I praying about? And as soon as I did that, as soon as I asked that question, I had an impression, not a knowledge, but I had an impression on the inside that I was praying for somebody in the church. Well, I know well enough to know that if I ask God a question, he doesn't give me a specific answer, then that's all I need to know. If I needed to know who specifically it was about, then he would have shown me. So I prayed and continued to pray, probably prayed for another 30 or 40 minutes. And finally, I got to the place where I knew, well, whatever it is, I got the answer. So I quit and went back to studying, getting ready for the service. Well, that evening at church, um, we came in and, and started regular service type stuff. 
And uh, I got up to, to uh, minister, started, you know, telling people, turn your Bibles to whatever. And, um, and there was a lady in the church that just hollered out and said, Pastor Mike, I've got a testimony. I've got to give this testimony. Is that all right? Yeah, well, sure. Go ahead. And she said that she was, that afternoon, she had um, come out of a place of business and gotten in her car. And she said, I put the car in reverse back out of the parking lot, the parking space I was in, you know, to get out of the lot. She said, as soon as I put the car in reverse and started back, she said there was a voice that sounded like it was somebody sitting in my back seat. And it said, as strong and as forceful as, as I've ever heard anything, stop the car and put it in park. She said, it scared me so bad, I didn't even think about what I was doing. I just stopped the car instantly, put the thing in park. She said, I sat there for about five seconds. And she said, and all of a sudden, there was a woman that came running up behind my car. She said, and I didn't see what was going on. This was long ago where you didn't have the backup cameras and all that kind of stuff in your car. She said, I saw this woman come running over, bend down behind my car, and then when she stood up, she had a little little toddler in her arms. So I got out of my car and walked around trying to find out what was going on. She said, this woman, the mom, was just white as a sheet. She said, well, what is going on? And the mom said, my little daughter let her ball roll away, and it rolled under your car. She said, she was right behind your car, and all of a sudden you stopped your car and put the thing in park, and I came running over to get her. She said, thank you so much for stopping your car. I don't know how you saw her, but thank you for stopping your car. It could have killed my little girl. Well, she said, the lady told her, lady that belonged to our church, told her, she said, well, I didn't see anything. She said, well, what did you stop your car for? Then she said, because God spoke to me from my back seat. She wound up witnessing to the lady and getting her to come to church with her. Now, folks, my my point is simply this. Is it less supernatural that I had an urge to pray without knowing exactly what was going on than if I'd had a vision of the car running over this little girl and tried to pray to stop it? My point is very simply this. We need to yield to the work of the Holy Ghost, whether it's a small urge or whether it's a greater manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Because the results are always supernatural. They may not be as spectacular in the process, but it always brings about supernatural results. See, we've got the church world saying, well, why doesn't God do that kind of stuff today? Why doesn't God do miracles today? And all the time, the Holy Ghost is trying to impress people to, to pray or to take action or to speak or to whatever the case might be to bring about the miraculous results that we read about in the book of Acts. But because people in the church world today aren't sensitive, because by and large they haven't been taught this stuff, but because they're not sensitive to the work of the Holy Ghost, they ignore these small urges that would bring about miraculous results. Are you out there? God hadn't changed. He still wants to make the secrets of people's hearts manifest to reach them. This mom with the little toddler, if there's one thing she became aware of is how much God loved her little girl. The Holy Ghost still wants to work today. 
Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the work that he does in the church. We ask you, Lord, to help us to be more sensitive to his leading. So that whether it's a small urge, a small impression, a still small voice, or the greater manifestation of one of these nine, we're in position to be used of you and to allow your work to reach people. Father, we desire these gifts. We desire the Spirit of God to manifest himself. As a church, we desire these things. Certainly, every one of us wants to be used, Father. But our motive to be used is to help others, not to be seen as something for ourselves. Not to make a name for ourselves, Lord. But so that the name of Jesus is magnified. So that your church, the body of Christ, is recognized as a place where the Spirit of God is alive and at work. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your desire to move. We declare by faith that you flow freely through us as individuals, through us as a church family, as you will. As you will, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Come on back and be with us tonight if you can.